Jay Rosen is moving this week, so I am joined by my very special guest host, Christy Grant Hart. What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. On This Week in FCPA, some of the stories we look at are the publication of Tom's The Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition, four ways to update your ABC compliance program, and Marie Zell and the FCPA blog. We look at the John Wood Group DPA with a serious fraud office. Alex Kosha takes a deep dive into the EU whistleblower directive in a four-part series on compliance, crime, and corruption. What are some of the emerging trends in third-party risk management? Jacqueline Jagger in Compliance Week. Mingi Sun interviews Sharon Watkins in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. And I trust concerns at the board level, Elizabeth Isling and others on New York University's Compliance and Enforcement blog, How to Avoid an FCPA Issue in CCI, Compliance in the Inside versus the Outside, Amy Landry and CCI, and con- Compliance Officers as Disciplinarians. All this and more on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back in with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA, episode 260, the week ending July 9, 2021, the Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition edition. As I celebrate the release of the Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition, Jay and I are back to take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our collective interest on this week in FCPA the Compliance Handbook, second edition. So, Jay, uh, what say you? I say congratulations, my friend. Uh, Let's hear all about what the differences are between uh, the initial handbook and version two. So, Jay, uh, the main difference, well, it's about 40% rewritten. Uh, After the uh, initial volume came out, we had the 2019 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs from the Fraud Section. We had OFAC's uh, Compliance Framework in June of 2019. And then in July of 2019, we had the Antitrust Division's Anti-Compliance Evaluation of of Antitrust Compliance Programs. And then, of course, in 2020, we had the update to the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs released in June. And then in July, we had the uh, FCPA Resource Guide, second edition, updating the original resource guide from 2012. So lots of new information, some new uh, Department of Justice policies, some some new innovations. I took a look at uh, compliance down the road. Uh, obviously, the use of data is was much more ubiquitous after the 2020 update, the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. So uh, a lot to talk about in there. It begins with uh, 31 days to a more effective compliance program where I I lay out a framework that you can utilize to uh, improve your compliance program at little or no cost over 31 days. And then I have 10 chapters and on uh, 
business ventures, policies and procedures, the role of HR, boards, um, investigations and root cause analysis, uh, and a wide variety of, of topics uh, once again, designed as a nuts and bolts, the nuts and bolts book for the compliance professional. I conclude with a look down the road and where compliance may be going. Uh, it's very biblical in nature, Jay. I know you'll appreciate it. 12 chapters, uh, 12 months if you want to go secular. And so we, uh, it's, it gives you uh, one, uh, one topic per day for each business day with three key takeaways that, once again, you can integrate into your compliance program at little or no cost. So it was a lot of fun writing it. In addition to the book itself, I'm uh, absolutely thrilled with my new relationship with LexisNexis as the part, uh, publishing partner. LexisNexis is the world's largest legal book publisher, and uh, they invited me. They created a compliance library, which will be focused on the nuts and bolts of compliance, and they invited me to be their inaugural, inaugural author. So I'm honored by LexisNexis. It's available to them. Uh, it's now available for purchase and order, no longer pre-sale. So you can check it out. We put it in the show notes where you can get more information on the book and where you can purchase it. So I hope you'll purchase it. Uh, it's, uh, it was a, a lot of fun writing, very enjoyable researching. Uh, if you'd like a further uh, look into it, there's my podcast, the Compliance Handbook, second edition podcast, video pod as well. So lots of information out there, Jay, and I hope our listeners will benefit from it. So congrats again, Tom. It's been a long time coming. Uh, let's uh, step into the first story of the week. This comes to us from the FCPA blog. Four ways to update your ABC compliance program right now by Anne Marie Zell. Based on some recent experience, here's a brief list of key improvements companies can make to their ABAC compliance programs now and related questions they should be asking as part of the effort. Number one, understand and improve accessibility to your ABAC programs. In what languages is the ABAC policy published? We frequently see policies that are made available in English only. If this is the case with your company's policy, consider translating it into additional languages, starting with those where you have the most employees. How user-friendly is it? If your policy is available online, consider making the document searchable so that employees can quickly find the information they seek. Also ask if it's easy to read and digest. If the reader requires a law degree to understand what's required of them, then you've likely missed the policy, missed the mark with your policy. Where can employees find the company's ABCA policy? Many companies post their compliance policies and procedures on their intranets and a growing number on their public websites. This is great for office-bound, home, or otherwise employees, but in some cases, this might not reach everyone. For example, employees working in the field or, or in remote locations without the internet or cell service consider sending them old-fashioned hard copies. Number two, address commercial bribery. Is the ABAC policy focused solely on bribery of government officials? If your company drafted its policy with an eye towards the FCPA, then it might not address commercial bribery. Companies ignore commercial bribery at their own peril. Not only does Section 1 of the UK Bribery Act address it, but the DOJ can also enforce state commercial bribery statutes via the Travel Act. Number three, prohibit non-US political contributions. 
Do employees contribute company funds to political candidates or parties outside the U.S.? We've seen a trend away from allowing non-U.S. political contributions. They are, by definition, fraught with heightened FCPA risks. After all, the FCPA treats improper payments to political parties and candidates for office in the same way it treats bribes to sitting government officials. And finally, incorporate root cause analysis. When misconduct occurs in the company, analyzing and addressing the root cause, the DOJ places a, a lot of emphasis on root cause analysis in its evaluation of corporate compliance program guidance. They want to see companies getting to the bottom of why misconduct occurred and implementing changes to prevent it from happening again. Reviewing what your company's policy has to say about investigations, it probably sets forth that the company will investigate all credible reports of potential misconduct. Consider adding that as part of the investigation, the company will elevate the root cause of misconduct and implement appropriate remediation actions. ABAC policies and procedures should certainly be tailored to your company's own specific risks and needs. However, these four issues are universal for companies with global operations. Where existing ABAC policies and procedures do not already address them, they are a means of making small changes that can have a big impact on your company. Back to you, Tom. So Jay, last week we discussed at length the AMAC Foster Wheeler FCPA enforcement action. Uh, early uh, on July 5th, in fact, the uh, UK court released the uh, Mr. Justice Eden's review of the deferred prosecution agreement with the John Wood Group. The John Wood Group had the misfortune, through negligence or otherwise, to purchase AMAC Foster Wheeler, who purchased Foster Wheeler. So it was the John Wood Group on the hook to the tune of, on a worldwide basis, $177 million. And I think we had, you know, discussed at length. Foster Wheeler, well, we had no idea of the culture of corruption in Foster Wheeler. It not only was endemic, but frankly, it was their business strategy. And uh, Mr. Justice Edis, in his judgment, absolutely skewered uh, Foster Wheeler, not so much AMEC Foster Wheeler and, and not so much the John Wood Group, or actually not at all the John Wood Group. But it wasn't just bribery and corruption in Brazil around Petrobras, it was in Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, Malaysia, and India. All of these countries, uh, Foster Wheeler had years of paying bribes. Uh, but that's just part of it, Jay. You don't have a culture of corruption without the very top being in on it. And starting in 2007, uh, there were a series of internal investigations by the law firm Baker Botts that uncovered this corruption first in Malaysia, then in Saudi Arabia, uh, and then in Nigeria, uh, later in India. Uh, the board of directors of then Foster Wheeler uh, completely abrogated uh, their duties and uh, did nothing, did not self-report, did not remediate, did nothing. Um, the uh, Mr. Justice Eden, once again, the UK justice, said that this conduct was, quote, deplorable, end quote, and uh, just, like I said, skewered um, the Foster Wheeler board. And he pointed out lots of reasons why you should self-report, even if it's not your legal obligation. Number one, 
uh, John Wood Group wouldn't have paid 177 million uh, at the end of the day uh, to settle this. Two, uh, the society that, that the bribery and corruption continued not simply hurt the countries where Foster Wheeler was engaged in the bribery and corruption, but of course, the businesses who were trying to compete on a level playing field. Little did they know, Foster Wheeler was uh, inside paying bribes. Obviously, Foster Wheeler. Uh, corruption con- continued, and the entire culture of corruption uh, continued. Uh, and this culture of corruption was literally burned into Foster Wheeler. Um, the John Wood Group uh, agreed to, as Justice Eves says, pick up the can for all of this. The question I had after the FCPA enforcement action, ending in a deferred prosecution agreement, uh, continues to the UK DPA, uh, as well as where was AMEC and where was John Wood's compliance function in the pre-acquisition due diligence. Now, when John Wood bought the company, the uh, matter had been uh, referred to the Serious Fraud Office and to the Department of Justice. We don't know where that referral came from. So John Wood was on notice, John Wood Group was on notice but why on earth would you buy a company that you knew you were going to have to lose a large amount of business on, then you're going to have to pay a huge fine, then you're going to have to pay multi-millions uh, to remediate? Uh, where was the post-merger uh, uh, remediation and forensic audit? Where was that, of course, with AMEC, who bought Foster Wheeler in 2014? So uh, I didn't think the case could get worse, but it did. It got exponentially worse. Uh, You have to wonder why there were no individual prosecutions, except for the fact that perhaps there's a five-year statute of limitations, because this conduct, Jay, went back to 1996 and continued unabated to 2014. So lots to digest in the uh, UK deferred prosecution agreement. There was also a lengthy discussion by the court of the economic factors. That's not something we typically get here in the United States. Uh, it's worth that, reading that alone to get a flavor of the, uh, the UK judgment. But lots to digest, and I've done it for you in two blog posts, which I've linked to in the show notes. Back to you, Jay. Before we get to Jay, we're going to have a short break. Thanks, Tom. Uh, next up, Alex Katoya, hopefully I said it right, takes a deep dive into the EU whistleblower directive and a four-part mini-series on uh, Mike Volkov's compliance, crime, and corruption blog. So here's some uh, selections from it. It's a real detailed piece, and we link to it in the show notes. Directive 2019-1937 of the European Parliament and Council, dated 23 October 2019, on the protection of persons who report breaches of union law, the directive, is set to enter into legal force on 17 December 2021, the deadline established by the European Union. The directive has broad applicability to organizations operating in the EU internal market and applies to both public and private sector organizations. As a general matter, the directive requires member states to adopt common minimum standards respecting the protection of would-be whistleblowers who report violations of EU law. Here are some highlights. 
By virtue of Article 6, whistleblowers are guaranteed legal protection under the directive to the extent that, one, they have reasonable grounds to believe that the information reported was true at the time, and two, the whistleblower reported either internally to the organization, externally to a competent authority, or publicly as provided by Article 15. Article 7 of the directive instructs member states to encourage reporting through internal organizational channels first, where the risk of retaliation is remote and the reported breach can be effectively addressed on an internal basis. In Article 9 of the directive is by and large the most impactful for organizations affected. Under this article, organizations must implement enhanced procedures for both internal reporting and diligent follow-up. Specifically, organizations must ensure the channels for receiving reports are designed, established, and operated in a secure manner. Articles 10 to 12 in the, of the directive addresses the needs for member states to designate competent authorities to receive external reports respecting breaches of EU law. And the second blog post, they take a look at data privacy and record keeping. Article 17 of the directive explicitly incorporates the provisions of Regulation 2016-679 on the protection of natural persons with regard to the processing of personal data, GDPR. Article 17 also prohibits collection of personal data manifestly not relevant to handling a specific report. Article 18 of the directive imposes certain record-keeping requirements on both private and public sector organizations. Finally, where an actual meeting occurs between the whistleblower and the organization's staff, the record-keeping requirement may be satisfied by either recording the conversation in a durable and retrievable form or by enlisting a staff member to take notes. Here are protections, prohibitions, and penalties. The directive's robust prohibitions against retaliation for covered persons, including both attempts and threats, is meticulously outlined in Article 19. Among the things Article 19 broadly prohibits retaliation in the following forms, suspension, layoff, dismissal, or equivalent measures, demotion or withholding of promotion, transfer of duties, change of location or work, withholding or of training, negative performance assessments, or employment reference. Pursuant to Article 20 of the directive, member states are also obliged to offer support for whistleblowers. Reporting persons enjoy significant legal protections by virtue of Article 21. To safeguard the prohibitions of protections afforded to whistleblowers elsewhere in the directive, Article 23 instructs member states to provide for effective, proportionate, and dissuasive penalties applicable both to natural and legal persons alike. Beyond general familiarizing yourselves with the directive's new requirements, those in the ethics and compliance functions of organizations operating in the internal markets of the EU should be attuned to emerging legislative developments in individual member states as the deadline for trans transposition international law approaches in December 2021. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, uh, next up, we have some emerging trends in third-party risk management from our good friend Jacqueline Jagger at Compliance Week. Uh, she really laid out, uh, I think, a, a broad overview of um, what compliance professionals are thinking about. And, and obviously, data privacy regulations, cybersecurity controls, 
uh, stress by remote work, ransomware attacks are all important. But uh, she interestingly emphasized the need for enhanced due diligence. And this has become, it became even more important, I think, during the pandemic, but also uh, because we couldn't do the sort of deep dive due diligence that was previously done, sort of face-to-face and things like that, companies got a lot more adept at utilizing data and data analytics and really indicators which would show whether a company was within a, a tolerance range or they were outliers. So um, enhanced due diligence, I think, is here to stay. And then fin- her final point is the spotlight on ESG and how companies are incorporating ESG compliance into their ABC compliance program. It, uh, it is important to note that compliance and ESG have two pillars. Nevertheless, uh, there's uh, clearly uh, a governance aspect uh, with overlap and putting policies and procedures in place to be in compliance with your own ESG policy is critical. So uh, I don't want to say it's counterintuitive, Jay, uh, but you and I have been in this space for for quite some time. And here we are in uh, July 2021 talking about the need for more robust third-party risk management. And it really points to the fact that third-party risk management is not only the biggest FCPA risk, it's the biggest business risk as well. What do you have up next, Jay? Uh, next, we've got something from the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal from a uh, frequent contributor, Menke Sung, and she interviews Sharon Watkins, the initial Enron whistleblower. Sharon Watkins, excuse me, who warned management about accounting practices in, 2020, in 2001, says being publicly known hurt her career prospects. The Enron corporate executive who warned management about fraud said not having confidentiality and protection for whistleblowers can be a cost. Nearly 20 years after the energy company's class, Ms. Watkins, 61 years old, said being labeled a whistleblower has been a challenge to her career ever since. If current whistleblower protections had been in place at the time, she said, she would have been able to report her concerns to the SEC while keeping her name confidential. Her revelations come as more corporate insiders are blowing the whistle these days on possible wrongdoing through whistleblower programs that give out awards for helpful tips and provide important confidentiality and anti-retaliation protections to those who come forward. Ms. Watkins, now living near Austin, Texas, still gives speeches about Enron on the warning signs of bad organizational cultures. Nonetheless, Ms. Watkins describes herself as quote, grossly underemployed, unquote, adding that she has struggled to find another job in the corporate world. Today's whistleblower reward program at the SEC and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission provides an option to report potential misdeeds confidentially, offering an easier path for those concerned about fraud at their companies. Ms. Watkins first wrote her one-page fraud complaint anonymously and placed it in an employee drop box in August of 2001. But she decided to identify herself the next day and met with Kenneth Lay, Enron's chief executive at the time. She did not report what she knew directly to the government in hopes that Enron executives would report it themselves. But she later was interviewed by the SEC and the Justice Department for their investigations into Enron 
and testified at congressional hearings. She said she felt shunned after her name became attached to the company's collapse. It's a toxic, toxic label where you won't work in your chosen career ever again and you lose friendships. People are hesitant to really join in a venture with you or move forward just because there's too much noise around that label of being a whistleblower, she said. The SEC whistleblower program has received more than 40,000 tips based on a review of data. The SEC says in its 2020 annual report to Congress that about 68% of its award recipients to date were current or former insiders of the company involved. The incentives and protection provisions of Dodd-Frank changed the landscape because it attracted legal, legal advocacy and legal support towards the cause of the whistleblowers, she said. Had Don Frank been in place when she was at Enron, Ms. Watkins says she would have had reported anonymously through an attorney and believes the SEC would have investigated and fined Enron earlier before the minor frauds became major ones. Quote, I would have remained anonymous, stayed employed, and Enron would still be alive, she said. So it's a wonderful check and balance. Back to you, Tom. Jay, I know your uh, AMI colleague, Jesse Kaplan, uh, has worked at the antitrust division. Mike, our good friend Mike Volkoff has as well. And they've talked about some of their experiences in antitrust uh, litigation and claims. But here we have an antitrust case that goes in a little bit different direction. So I thought it was important to bring it up, Jay. On June 21, the DOJ announced that two officers of the Endeavor Group's holding uh, had resigned their positions as boards of directors of Live Nation Entertainment in the wake of concerns expressed by the DOJ that the two companies had formed an illegal interlocking directorate under antitrust laws. And what all that means is when there's a merger, boards have to be careful that any new board members or board members of a newly merged company on other boards don't have two calls of an interest. This could be a Section 8 Clayton Act violation and common ownership interests or issues frequently arise in the context of interlocking directorates. And the DOJ is concerned that a uh, director or officer may serve as a conduit for anti-competitive agreement or even information exchange. So I thought this was uh, important to, uh, to highlight. We don't see this very often, but in uh, acquisition or uh, or, or M&A work, there are new arenas of competition that can create uh, potential overlaps, which could fall uh, afoul of Section 8 of the Clayton Act. So it's important from the corporate governance perspective, and certainly something that companies should look at uh, in the M&A process going forward. Back over to you, Jay. Uh, next up, we've got an article about how to avoid buying an FCPA issue. This comes to us from Valerie Charles, Jamin Tyler, and Robert Johnson in Corporate Compliance Insights. So how can you design post-M&A compliance integration and audit plans? Recent regulatory guidance underscores the need for and benefits from post-closing audits. The DOJ and the SEC's FCPA Resource Guide outline concrete steps that a company subject to the FCPA should take when considering a merger or acquisition. 
first conduct thorough risk-based FCPA and anti-corruption due diligence. Ensure that the inquirer's code of conduct and compliance policies and procedures regarding the FCPA and other anti-corruption laws apply as quickly as practicable to the newly acquired business. Train the directors, officers, employees, and newly acquired businesses or merged entities, and when appropriate, train agents and business partners on the FCPA and other relevant anti-corruption laws. Conduct an FCPA-specific audit of all newly acquired or merged businesses as quickly and practicable. And finally, dis disclose any corrupt payments discovered as part of the due diligence of the newly acquired entities or merged companies. The DOJ and SEC will give meaningful credit to companies who undertake these actions, and in appropriate circumstances, the DOJ and SEC will consequently decline to bring enforcement actions. Design a post-closing compliance integration and audit. Given the potential successor liability exposure, it should be clear that compliance professionals within inquirers have a key role to play in the post-close integration process. In particular, compliance should be prepared to, one, integrate the target and its employees into the acquirer's compliance program, and two, promptly conduct an FCPA risk assessment and audit to identify, correct, and where appropriate, report violations by the target company. Compliance integration best practices. After closing, it's important to integrate the company's employees into the acquirer's program. The resource guide describes two primary components to doing so. First, apply the acquirer's code of conduct and the FCPA policies and procedures to the newly acquired target, and two, train directors, managers, employees, and third parties that are at the acquired target on the FCPA code of conduct and FCPA-related policies and procedures. Policies and procedures training. A first step to integrating a target and its employees into the acquirer's compliance program is rolling out the acquirer's code of conduct, FCPA policies and procedures, to the target management employees, and three related training, including on policies and procedures related to gifts and entertainment, interacting with government officials, charitable giving and political contributions, maintaining accurate books and records, use of petty cash or similar policies created to mitigate, mitigate bribery and corruption risk. Finally, the post-closing audit. Conducting a thorough and prompt post-close FCPA audit and remediating and reporting issues can help insulate the acquirer from future successor liability based on past or ongoing misconduct at the company. These audits are particularly employment are important where pre-closed due diligence covers potential wrongdoing, violations of applicable law, unethical behavior, or significant weaknesses or gaps in the target FCPA program and controls. So uh, it's a very comprehensive article. These are just some selections from it. But please check out the link on the on the show notes. Bless you, Tom. Back to you. Jay, next up we have an article from Amy Landry on Corporate Compliance Insights. And Amy worked for many years in a vendor side position, advising clients on how to manage their in-house uh, compliance programs. And she's recently moved in-house herself. And she talks about how um Really, the, diff the, the main difference is before she was giving advice, literally, uh, based on, uh, you know, 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, 
the federal sentencing guidelines, the DOJ's guidance, et cetera. And she would give her advice and would work to help set up a program. But at the end of the day, she wasn't the person that executed that pro program. Now she is that person who executes that pro program. And she's responsible for not only recommending or advising uh, a plan uh, remediation or a, an update or an enhancement based upon a change in law, policy, or risk, but executing that and then driving changes to make improvement. And so she feels like it's in her power now to ensure that a compliance program is delivering on its promise. So uh, we do get this kind of uh, movement sometimes, Jay, from the uh, the vendor side in-house and certainly from in-house to the vendor side. So it's interesting to see how uh, Amy's mind really had to shift and to become uh, much more hands-on as responsible for this uh, program. Uh, and her company is Cardinal Innovation Healthcare. So um, uh, interesting uh, article. You want to uh, take some with our last article, Jay? Sure. This is the uh, second of two from the FCPA blog by the FCPA blog's founder, Dick Casson, and it's entitled, Yes, Compliance Officers Are Disciplinarians Too. Compliance officers craft policies, train, train employees, oversees due diligence, perform risk assessments, and lead investigation. But there's also another compliance role that's practically unknown, disciplinarian. Disciplinarian may not appear in the job description, but it's high on the government's agenda. In the DOJ's evaluation of corporate compliance programs, discipline occurs 22 times. In the FCPA resource guide, there's a section called Incentives and Disciplinary Measures. It says that the DOJ and SEC will evaluate compliance programs based partly on whether a company has, quote, appropriate and clear disciplinary procedures, whether those procedures are applied reliably and promptly, and whether they are commensurate with the violation, close quote. Effective internal discipline can be a powerful deterrent against improper behavior by a corporation's employees. Prosecutors should be satisfied that the corporation's focus is on the integrity and credibility of its remedial and disciplinary measures rather than on the protection of wrongdoers. In real life, where does the employee discipline fit with FCPA enforcement and compliance? Everywhere. For example, this year's FCPA enforcement action against Deutsche Bank included a DPA that credited the bank with employment actions based on the investigator's findings, which included disciplining and terminating certain employees. Last year's DOJ resolution with Goldman Sachs imposed a DPA that required the firm to implement mechanisms designed to effectively enforce its compliance code, policies, and procedures, including appropriately incentivizing compliance and dis disciplining violations. What about compliance beyond FCPA? When ZTE paid $1.19 billion in penalties to settle a 2017 U.S. trade sanctions case, it promised to fire four employees and discipline 37, uh, 35 others by reducing their bonuses or reprimanding them. A year later, the Commerce Department said that CTE had not disciplined those 35 employees, and on that basis, U.S. authorities hit ZTE with a denial of export privileges. How involved with employee discipline should compliance officer be? Well, that's a company decision, 
But according to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, prosecutors should ask, quote, who participates in making disciplinary decisions, including for the type of misconduct at issue, close quote. And if not compliance officer, along with HR and others, who is qualified? The FCPA resource guide says, rewarding good behavior and sanctioning bad behavior enforces a culture of compliance and ethics throughout an organization. Who's the arbiter of bad behavior? Again, compliance officers. So who better to help decide how to discipline those who won't and can't comply? We are over to podcasts and events. So some of the highlights from podcasts this week on the Compliance Podcast Network is Richard Lummis and I continue our exploration about Plutarch's lives and leadership lessons from ancient Greece and ancient Rome. This week, it's the Greek Epamandas and the Roman Scipio Africanus. Uh, for the month of July, I've started a new series on the compliance life. This month, it's Asha Palmer, the CECO at Conversant. In episode one, uh, she talks about uh, her journey to becoming a lawyer from Claire Huxable to the Department of Justice. I premiered a new podcast of Tom Fox commentary wait, wait, called Reading Fox has a Listen. new podcast? That's crazy. We have a, a new podcast. Greetings and felicitations. Special prize to anyone who guesses the Star Trek episode I purloined that line from. But in the inaugural episode, uh, CPN fan favorite Ben Lockwood's back to discuss the current state of COVID-19 and where we might be headed. Some of the highlights from trekking through compliance this past week include the Apple, the Doomsday Machine, Cat's Paw, iMud, and Metamorphosis. Jay, you want to tell us about uh, a, uh, a couple of events we got coming up? Sure. On July 13th, please join K2 Integrity for its virtual compliance conference on environment, social, and governance compliance risk for financial institutions. Of course, there's a link and more information on the show notes. And please join Tom Asha Palmer and Steve Martin, Stephen Martin rather, for our coming out webinar for the Compliance Handbook Second Edition. The trio will focus on third-party risk management, and attendees will receive a special article and offer. Best of all, it's Tom, get this, it's free at no charge. So there's no excuse not to attend. Again, details and registrations are in the show notes. To get in touch with Tom and congratulate him on the publishing of his second edition, he is the voice of compliance, and he can be reached at tfox, T-E-F-O-X, at tfoxlaw.com. And as always, I'm Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, and you can reach me at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. Tom, any other uh, remarks on uh, the post-4th of July holiday or uh, anything else? Jay, I should note that in the uh, webinar next week with the coming out party for the Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition, it will be Wednesday, uh, July 14th at 1030 uh, Central Time. So uh, check out uh, that information, and I hope you'll join us for my coming out party. Great. Well, everyone, as always, we appreciate you spending some of your week or weekend with us to catch up on This Week in FCPA. And uh, we'd like to thank you. And uh, I will give the official closing. So for this week in FCPA, episode 260, for the week ending July 9th, 2021, 
We'd like to thank you for joining us for the Compliance Handbook, second edition. Please have a good weekend, and we'll talk to you next week when we look at this week and the FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.